One other thing you guys didn't do is Eric asked you to hug each other when you went back, and I didn't see anybody hugging anybody. And I, I just, I thought you'd want to stand and just give each other a little hug, maybe just, come on, stand up and give, a, come on, let the love flow. Oh, some of you are like, I am not standing. I didn't listen the first time on purpose. Oh, that's better. Some of you thought I was kidding. You're like, no way. That's better. Doesn't that feel good? Just a little hug right there. Wow. Who got the prophetic word about the door? I mean, who has received that? Oh, that was a good word, huh? About the door. You ought to fix your door, maybe. Maybe the Lord didn't want you to fix your door so you can get a prophetic word about the door, huh? That's good. Wow. Well, let's pray and just see what we're going to do. Holy Spirit, thank you for... Lord, just thank you that you're having me speak tonight. <laughs> wait, 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 finish. You guys are so funny. Oh no, you fall right into it, huh? Erase that from the podcast. Okay. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you that your presence is here tonight. Thank you that you're not just our chief guest, but Lord, we're actually guests in your house. And Lord, we just pray for your anointing to be on us tonight, just to see, to be transformed. Hmm. Thank you, Lord. Father, we just pray right now. We pray for our hearts to be soft. How many of you know that there's only two parables about seed, about the type of seed in the Bible, but there's several parables about the kind of soil? <laughs> You're responsible for the soil, right? Okay, we're back to praying. Some of you are like, I'm praying. Don't interrupt me right now. <laughs> so, Lord, we pray for the soil of our heart. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. I don't like when people preach to me while they're praying. So I've tried to not do that. So that means I have to stop praying so I can preach to you. So now we're back to praying, all right? Okay, bow your heads. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> I pray for the soil of our heart that you'd make it soft. Help these people, Lord. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for the people who are serious tonight. Lord, release serious joy over them. Serious joy. Thank you, Lord. Yep. Let every person in this room experience the joy that's the Lord's. Wow. Huh. 
Amen. Lord, I pray that even people on the bleachers who are not comfortable because they came late I'm joking. I know some of you just like sitting back there. Lord, I just pray for a blessing on all those people who don't want to be close to me. <laughs> Fill them with joy also. Okay, now I'm done praying. Everybody say, so be it. <laughs> Turn to um, Luke 15, would you? Please. <laughs> Sorry. Somebody, you know, um, on Amazon you can write comments, uh, like on different books you can write, what do they call it? Like a reviews. Yeah, you can write reviews. By the way, if you buy one of my books and you have an Amazon account, write a review if you liked it. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't write a review. Have somebody on there that said... I have to admit, I only read 20%. No, it says, I only read some of the book, but I really think it was boring. And they said, and it's funny because it's the only book I've ever read of Bill's that's boring. (laughs) Read it, it says that. And I thought, well, you didn't read far enough to even know that he didn't write it, you big bonehead. (laughs) But you felt enough freedom to write a review. That is people. I have an opinion about something I have no idea about. (laughs) But if you'd like to go on Amazon and write a review on our books, it really helps them to sell if it's positive. If it's negative, just keep your dang opinion to yourself. (laughs) Yeah, and my book's connected to Kevin's books on Amazon, so... A review for me is a review for Kevin, so you don't have to even do a review for Kevin. I was going to tell you something about that, though. Oh, man, I hate that. Whatever, I'm lucky I can remember my name some days. In conferences, you get so drunk they put your name on a tag. You notice that? Some people use, you know, like those armbands. We can't do that. Our people get too drunk, they can't remember who they are. We have to give them name tags and where they're from so if they get lost, at least they can get back to the right city. (laughs) Jeez. I was going to say something about reviews. That wasn't an advertisement to write one in there. Oh, man, I hate that. Maybe we should pray again. You know, I've even forgot to pray for amnesia. Whatever. Okay, let's go to... Uh, I need a name tag. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know it was something about a review someone wrote, but I can't remember what it was. Sorry, I'm still trying to remember. Maybe it'll come to me later. It'll come to me tonight I'll, when I'm in bed. I'll be, oh, that was so good. You should hear the messages I preach when you're not here. (laughs) Shoo, I rock. (laughs) 
Okay, well, Ben's, we're not going to do that. Let's turn to uh, Luke 15 and read from verse 1, and we're going to read this whole chapter. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, speaking of Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable, saying, What what man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that the same way there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety-nine righteous persons who never need repentance. That's just a Selah right there. It means that most of the people in the kingdom are righteous and don't need repentance. I just thought it made my good point about that I didn't make yet tonight? That's in my book that you'd want to write a review on. That says you're not a sinner anymore, but you're a saint. It says you used to be a sinner, but now when you got re- received Jesus, you were in the one step, I became a saint program. And now when you come in here, it's like the saints come marching home. This is the good point I made. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins loses one, and loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep under the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Oh, sweep the whole house, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, none of these, like, that are real relevant to American culture, like, I've never seen a sheep outside of a fence. And my wife just vacuums when we lose coins, and she's excited about it. You know, she's like, oh, we had people over. (laughs) So, in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his state with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he, found, and, and he, would, I'm sorry, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods which the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything. Verse 17, And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out his best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. 
Now his older son was in the field, and when, he, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of his servants, and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began, to pleading, with, and began pleading with him. And he answered him and said to his father, Look, for many years I've been serving, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and, never let, and you've never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, your son of yours, when this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours, this brother of yours who was dead, has come to life, and he was lost, and now he's found. You know, I just wanted to talk tonight. I have just a, a few points, but I, I felt like the Lord has given us some real insight into his heart. First of all, I want you to look back at uh, chapter 15, the, uh, the second verse. It says, The Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, and he goes on to tell them parables. How many of you know that the prodigal son parable is a response to the scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling? First, let me say that again. The scribes and Pharisees are grumbling because he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. Are you with me? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and they're grumbling. They're grumbling, so he tells them three parables. The lost coin parable, the one about the, the sheep who gets lost, remember that? And then the last parable he tells them is about the prodigal son. Now, how many of you know that we always call it the story of the prodigal son, but Jesus said, Jesus actually titled the parable, he said, a man had two sons. How many of you know that the story is actually about two sons, not about one son? I want to propose to you that the two sons and the father represent two ways of thinking. The first way is the elder brother. And I want, to, I want to propose to you that Jesus uses the older brother as a type of scribes and Pharisees. That he's saying to them, listen, you guys are angry because I'm hanging around with sinners and I'm friends with tax collectors and you're like the older son. He's, he is giving them a parable so that they can see that they're the elder brother in the story and the father in the story is the father's attitude. <laughs> I want to propose to you that that the morality of the younger son is directly tied to the religious culture of the Pharisees. Okay, I won't say that again because you're so quiet. You're probably trying to figure out what I'm saying, right? Let me just back up and give you an example. I believe that the feminist movement was actually a reaction to the church oppressing women. The church uses the Bible to oppress women. Well, what a lot of people don't understand is that when the Bible was written, 
what Jesus did with women and the way that apostles treated women was revolutionary. Because women were considered property when the Bible was written. Men weren't allowed to talk to women in public unless it was their wife. And over and over, the disciples are stunned because Jesus is not just talking to a woman, he's teaching a woman. He lets women follow him, interact with them, and he goes to their house. Totally, culturally forbidden. Peter says, husbands, treat your wives as fellow heirs or God won't hear your prayers. See, what we don't understand is that when the Bible was written, the Bible was written in the Afghanistan woman culture of 10 years ago, where a woman was nothing but property. And so the Bible was revolutionizing the fact that women had value. In other words, the Bible was... was was a a book that empowered women for its culture. Can you imagine Jesus in Afghanistan of 10 and 15 years ago acting with women like he was acting? And saying, you know, the fact that Paul had to say, I don't allow a woman to teach, means that women had so much freedom that they were beginning to actually be able to teach and take leadership positions, which would have been totally unheard of before the Gospels because they were nothing but property. Are you following me? The fact that he had to tell women in, in, in certain churches to not talk to their, to their husbands during church was a sign that women were getting freedom. You're, 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 not, you're not getting this because, you don't, because what, you, what we've forgotten is that until, 19, until 1940, a woman couldn't even vote in our country. In our country. 1900 years later, a woman couldn't even vote in our country. Now we're looking at, we're reading the Bible, we're reading the Bible from 2000 and something years from the culture, and we're going, that, that book oppresses women. No, that book was freedom to women. It was revolutionizing the way men were allowed to look at women. Jesus wouldn't let a man think an adulterous thought against a woman. That was a value for women. Are you, do you understand? Jesus said, if you think an adulterous thought towards a woman, you've already raped her in your mind, and you're guilty against God. People thought of women as, what was, what's the problem with that? She's a woman. Jesus told his disciples, you have to stay married. They say, this is impossible. Who can do this? <laughs> Why? Because they would just marry women. No, I'd get rid of this one and get me another one. Are you following me? And Jesus said, no, no, you have to value her. You have to marry her for life. And, and the disciples' response to that was, well, who can do this? And Jesus said, all things, all, he, says, he says, everything's impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. In response to them saying, who could stay married forever? Because they didn't have a value for the person they were married to. They were just property. Are you, I, I'm saying all this to say, do you understand that sometimes we read the Bible and we superimpose our culture and we don't understand the culture was written in and we don't realize that that, that that this book was totally empowering to women. But guess what? 
When, when religion gets it, it'll figure out some way to reduce you and control you. When religion gets a hold of the Word of God, it uses it to control you from the outside and reduce you. So, I'm giving you an example. I believe the feminist movement was a response to the church oppressing women. I believe that the sexual revolution revolution of the 60s was a response to a pharisaical attitude towards sex in the church. Do you, do you know that the older brother... Okay, let's just look at this. When, when the younger brother comes home, what does the father... The first thing the father wants to do is what? Party. What does the older brother refuse to do? Party. You know why? Because he tells the father that he's been working hard while his brother's out partying. And remember that the older brother represents the Pharisee's attitude because Jesus told the parable to demonstrate the difference between their Pharisee's attitude and the father's attitude. How many of you know that maybe the brother had to go out and find a party because he couldn't get one at home? <clears throat> There's a whole religious structure that says that God and serious are directly related. The first miracle that Jesus ever did was make wine for people who were already drunk. Now you all thought, well, that they weren't drunk. It was it was unfermented wine. I'll tell you who taught you that. Somebody who doesn't believe in drinking, but not somebody who's an expert in Greek. Because we read the Bible to make it say what we want it to say, not what it really says. I'll say, well, you know, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't make wine for drunk people. I wouldn't either, but I, don't, I didn't write the Bible. He did. Now, the, you know, maybe the biggest miracle is that he got invited to the party. With 12 disciples including Peter. They all got invited to a wedding. And they went. Which is why they got accused of hanging around drunkards and tax collectors. That's like they were friends with the IRS. Maybe worse than that, actually. Maybe not. Huh. <laughs> I'm just trying to give you some time to think about what I'm saying. See, the parable is about the Pharisees and the kingdom. And the elder brother has the Pharisee's attitude. What's the Pharisee's attitude? It's all about hard work, sacrifice. It's all about memorizing the Bible. It's all about going. It's all about praying a lot. It's all about fasting. It's all about we're doing, we're doing all the hard work 
And we're not letting that guy in just because he wants to repent. No way. We're not letting him do that. And we definitely aren't having a party for him. I want to propose to you that the lack of joy might be what the young man was looking for in the first place. Because all his brother wanted to do was work all the time. Hopefully the person who said that actually has a job. Because <laughs> I use the keyword all the time. Some people need more of the elder brother. <laughs> we'll let that settle for a minute too. The older brother won't come to the party cause, because he's mad because his brother got... His father made a big party because his brother just came home and he knows that his brother like spent all his money on prostitutes and whores. And, and he's like, I've, you know, all I've done has been faithful. And he tells his father, like, you, you know, your son, your son, he's not my brother anymore, he's your son. Did you notice that at the end of the parable that, that Jesus calls him, your brother is back. What happens when someone screws up? <laughs> he ain't my problem. He's your son. How many of you have had those discussions with your children? With each other when your children mess up? I can remember coming home and Kathy would say, Your son, I absolutely knew he didn't do anything great in school that day. <laughs> oh no, I'm not in a flow yet. And it's, this is probably going to be a long message. <laughs> you know, the brother has a perspective. How many of you know that life is like a three-legged dog named Lucky? Some of you don't have any idea what. Like, Kathy never gets a joke. She's like, I have to explain it to her, and I'm like, that's not funny. She's like, that's not funny. I said, because you didn't get it. You know a three-legged dog named Lucky? Life's like that. It's about perspective, you know? You lose a leg, and you're like, you know, I thank God that I didn't die. And someone else is like, you know what? If there's really a God, then why did I lose a leg? Did you get that? I had to explain it. And then some of you were like, that's not funny. And... But isn't it true that life is about perspective? I mean, you, you have a flat tire and, you know, and, and you're, you stop and, you know, the tire's flat and it's made you late to work and someone comes along and helps you. And, and you know, some people are thankful that someone came and, oh, God sent me someone to help me. And someone else is like, well, if God really loved me, then why did I have a flat tire? And I want to propose to you that you see what you're prepared to see in life. You don't see what's really happening. You see what's prepared to, what you're prepared to see. If you think that God loves you and that He does miracles for you and you're in good standing with Him and 
you know, God just makes everything work out for good for me, and you have a flat and someone comes and helps you, you're like, oh, God sent an angel to help me. But if you're in, you know what, I messed up and God's mad at me, and, you know, he's, gosh, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm all, you know, in other words, it's kind of like you're living with the elder brother, and all the elder brother can think of is what you haven't done right. And you get a flat, you're like, God just punished me. How many of you have, know what I'm talking about? How many of you have know what I talk about? Good. I've seen that hand. You know, I went through a season recently that was, wasn't good. Yes, it means it was bad. Um, a few nights ago, probably a week ago, I was just I was laying in bed and I was thinking, you know, one of the, one of the things I know that happens is that if you go through a trial and you don't learn what God has for you to learn, then you can't fail one God's test because you get to take it over. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and and the Lord's always really encouraging. He's like, oh, awesome, D minus. That's so much better than you did last time. Maybe you know what I mean. It's just so, he's just so awesome, you know, about that. You know, it's like, you got 31 out of a thousand right. Last time, you only got five right. Take it again, you know, it's like, you know what I mean? I mean, for some of us, God had to put a graduation age on kindergarten. So there wouldn't be people shaving in kindergarten. <laughs> or people older than the teachers, you know. So I'm thinking, <laughs> sorry. This is serious, though. I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, you know, I just went through this season and, um, and I'm like, and I, I'm having this thought like, I don't know what I learned. Oh, yeah, you laugh. It ain't your trial. I'm really thinking, I don't know what I learned. Because a lot of times I go through something and I go, Oh, man, I know, that I, know I made a bad decision there. I'm never going to do that again. But I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, Oh, man, this is scary. I don't know what I learned. And then I have this thought, Oh, my goodness. I might get to do this again. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm really thinking about, I'm talking to myself like that. Like, I try it on myself before I tell God because I don't want to get in trouble <laughs> for being irreverent or anything. So, like, I talk to myself and God's all, how about, I'm like, oh, just a minute, let me just work this out and see if this sounds all right. So I'm talking to myself and I'm thinking to myself, I really am. This is a true story, though. I'm going to... I'm making it funny. It's just so it won't be so painful when you follow the point in a minute. And I'm really laying there. I'm really thinking. You know what? I can't think of what I learned. I don't know what I learned. I'm sure there was a lesson I'm supposed to learn in here, but I don't know what it is. And then I start to have this panic, like, oh no, if I don't know what it is and I didn't learn the lesson, 
then I may get to do this again. And this wasn't fun the first time. The second time, definitely leftovers are really bad. You know, typically, like, if you cook something that you didn't like the first time you ate it, you typically throw it away. (laughs) But when God gives you a meal, (laughs) whatever. Anyway, so I'm, I'm laying there and I said to the Lord, finally, I said, Lord, you know, I really am serious about this. Whatever it is you want me to learn from this season, I want to make sure that I have learned it because I really don't want to do this again. And the Lord said this to me. He said, sometimes I test you so that you can get to know me. And sometimes I test you so I can get to know you. So he told the children of Israel, I took you in the wilderness to test you to see what's in your heart. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about false prophets, he said, beware of false prophets. They'll come and they'll say, didn't we cast out demons, prophesy in your name, and do miracles? And he said, listen to this, I never knew you. Are you with me? See, how does God get to know you? Well, he knows all things. Well, you know how he knows you? He lets you go through things and he sees what's in your heart. (laughs) I knew that would get sobering. That's why I got you all drunk in the beginning. (laughs) See, it's important for us to know God and it's important for him to know us. And one of the things that he does is he brings home prodigals who have done nothing and they get the fat and calf and you've been doing all the work and you get nothing. But you don't realize, because you didn't do the parable of the three-legged dog very well, that you actually own the whole farm. All you're thinking about is the calf, because your brother got it. And how many of you know that the, the elder brothers just like, have you ever watched little kids? Like my son, my grandson, Evan, he wants whatever toy someone else wants. So he goes, I, I want to play with the Spider-Man. I say, okay, so I give him the Spider-Man. And Elijah's playing with the gun. He goes, I want the gun. I thought you wanted the Spider-Man. The gun is mine. <laughs> How many know everything is his if you touch it? What I'm getting at is that sometimes God brings people in who don't deserve anything and he blesses the socks off of them to see what everyone else who's being faithful will do with that. And he can tell you if you have a religious, pharisaical spirit on you because instead of rejoicing, you get jealous that someone else got what you've been wanting. And I want to propose to you that that culture... Am I, am, I, am I all right? Am I making steps? The culture where people have to work to gain favor and they refuse to have parties is the culture that drives prodigals out of the church and into the world where they try to find love in all the wrong places until they realize that the elder brother doesn't know a dang thing about having a party, but the father sure does.
Uh, let me just be real practical. Like, I think that hanging out with other Christians ought to be fun. I don't mean always. Obviously, there's always responsibility. And, you know, I understand the other side of the coin. I get that. You know, I'm a pastor. That's the most stressful job there is. You can't already get insurance. <laughs> to get life insurance as a pastor, they want to they check you. First, they want to do a mental evaluation like, and why did you want to be a pastor? <laughs> Whatever. I think that the, the identity and morality are directly related. I think the younger son leaves his father's house because he feels like a slave. And he acts like a slave. He feels like a slave, so he acts like a slave. And how does that slave act? A slave does whatever he can do. You give, you give a, 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 a person with a poverty mentality 10 bucks, and they've got to go spend it. They're not thinking about the future. They're not thinking about virtues that they make decisions from. They're not thinking about values. All they're thinking about is, I've got 10 bucks, and I need, to go, I need to go have me some fun. But you know what it says in verse, um, in verse 17? But when he came to his senses... In my Bible, and in the original Greek, it says, when he came to himself. When he came to himself, he went home. How many of you know he left because he wasn't himself? Man, this is good. You, if you see yourself any, as anything less than God sees you as, I don't know if that was good English, but you'll behave like it. Your behavior is a direct result of what you believe about yourself. If, let, me, let me finish. If you're sleeping around and you're immoral, that's because you don't think enough of, of yourself to wait for your prince or your princess. I have a, a good friend. She called me and she says, um, "Hey, I, you know, I met this guy. And he wants to marry me, and we've been going out for about five or six months." I said, "Oh, that's that's cool. You know, that's really cool." I'll call her Jane. Her name's not Jane. I said, "That's cool, Jane. You know, what's going?" So she's saying, "You know, I'd like to have your insight. And do you really feel like I'm supposed to marry him? I'd like to, you know, kind of have him call you and all that." And I said, "Okay, that sounds really good. You know, she's a believer, and he's." A believer, and I said, "Is he a believer?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, he's a believer." And I said, "Okay." So we're talking on the phone for a few minutes, and I said, "So why are you sleeping with him then?" Because the Lord told me she was sleeping with him. She's a friend, you know. She called me on, call her. <laughs> she goes, well, "Well, well, how do you know I'm sleeping with him?" I said, "Well, I don't know. Are you?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I'm right then, right?" She said, yeah. I said, I thought he was a Christian. She said, well, he is. I said, I thought you were a Christian. She says, I am. I said, then do you believe that sleeping with the man before your marriage is right? She said, no. I said, then how come, he, how come he's replaced your God? She said, what do you mean? I said, if God tells you not to and he tells you 
that he wants to, then it seems to me like you're willing to break your value system to please him. So he's taken the place of your God, which means your marriage doesn't have a chance because you put him in the place of God, so God has to be against him. She's like, is there anybody else there? <laughs> and I said, you know, the real problem, Jane, is that you don't have enough value for yourself to say to this guy, she says, I've waited like 10 years to find a man. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? If he's worth marrying, then you're worth waiting for. And she's like, well, yeah, I know that. I said, then try this. No. And she says, well, yeah. I said, you know why you don't tell him no? She said, well, I said, why don't you tell him no? She said, well, because I'm afraid to lose him. I said, okay, so what you're saying is it's easier to tell God no than him no. She's all, hmm, that's a good point. What I'm getting at is that she didn't, Jane didn't realize that she was worth waiting for. What she needed to say to Tarzan is, If you really love me, then you would protect my virginity. I said, if he won't protect your values now, what do you think he's going to do when he gets used to you? And if you won't build boundaries, if you won't live from virtues, then what, what kind of a person are you going to be when you get married? You're going to just do whatever you are afraid that he's... You're, you're going to do whatever it takes to please him. She's all, yeah. I said, well, your marriage has already failed and you haven't even got one yet. Ouch. <laughs> How's a crack up, huh? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like the, the, the younger brother doesn't realize who he is, he feels like he's a slave. That's why he leaves the house. He leaves the house like a slave and behaves like a slave instead of a son. And what's the first thing the father does? And you've heard me say this before, but what's the first thing the father does when he sees him in the field? He runs to him. Why? Well, I think several reasons. First of all, if you've ever been the younger brother, which I, I certainly have, we probably all have in some point of our life, and you start to get to the father's house, what starts happening when you get to the father's house? <laughs> the accuser's like, Right? The accuser and your brother, older brother, are best friends. How many of you got that? At least you got that. You didn't get the dog thing, but you got that. The accuser and your brother are on the same side. Dano made a great point. He said, never do for the devil what he can't do for himself. So you're getting... You didn't get that, did you? See, the devil has no authority. Who has all authority? Jesus. And who did he give it to? Us. Okay, so the devil cannot bring judgment against believers. But you know what he does? He gets believers to believe that they're supposed to pronounce judgment so that he can do, kill, steal, destroy. And believers are not the brightest people in the world sometimes. So they do for the devil what he can't do for themselves. And they prophesy judgment against people who need the Father. But they've been trained by the elder brother and the Pharisees. Oh man, that's a good word. Does it ever bother you that sinners 
act like sinners? It's just a thought. Do you know that Hollywood is not polluting the world? The world was polluted before Hollywood ever put a movie out. You know what? If we didn't have dirty movies, we'd still have sinners. This is deep. The problem isn't that people watch pornography. The problem is that they have an evil heart. Very deep. So why should you pronounce judgment on people who are acting like sinners when you're a saint and you struggle to act like one? It's just another thought I had. I don't know if it's part of the message or not. See, that whole culture is driving the younger sons out. It's driving the young generation out. What culture? The pharisaical, judgmental spirit that says, all there is in the kingdom is work hard. Do your job. And the younger son says, isn't there any place for fun in the kingdom? What's the first thing the father does when the younger son's coming home? The younger son's coming home, and he's, when he sees the father's house far away, what's he thinking about? I started there. What's the, what do you think the, older son, the younger son's thinking about? He's thinking about what the father's going to say to him. And what's he hearing? What's he hearing in his head? Who's he done most of the hanging out with in his older years? His dad or his brother? The brother. And he's hearing, Your father, your father's mad at you. You have no money. He's not going to receive it. You know, you got it, right? No, you don't got it? You want me to do some more of it? You go home. You better hope your mother answers the door. Because you're going to get a weapon if your dad comes. Look, here he comes. He's running out in the field. I told you. He's coming to kill you. Why is the father running in the field? Because the father knows that the son may get close to home and change his mind because he gets afraid. So he runs out in the field to meet him to make sure his son gets all the way home. And he's such in a hurry, he turns to the slave, his slave, and he says, hey, bring me the robe, the ring, and the sandals. What's the father do as soon as he sees him? He takes care of the reason why the kid left in the first place. See, it's really awesome. The, the young man asks for his inheritance, but his father, all the father gives him is money. But when he comes home, the father gives him inheritance. What's the inheritance? The robe, his identity. The ring, his authority. And the sandals, his purity. See, the father takes care of the reason why he left in the first place. He forgot who he was. So before he even gets him home, he gets him dressed. 
like royalty. And then he says to the son, you know what you need? A party. You need a party, and I've been saving the fattened calf for your homecoming. We need to have a party. What does the, the kid leaves to have a party? And he gets out partying, and when he gets home, he has the best party he's ever had, and his father put it on. And when the older brother goes, Hey, we can't party. I mean, this kid, what if he's not really repentant? His, his, his father says, Shut up and party. Here, blow on this. Where the thing? Have some fun. Your brother's home. Your brother's home. Your son. No, he's not my son. He's your brother. And you have ownership of his homecoming. Now get your rear to the party and smile and have some fun so your brother doesn't have to leave again. You know, I've said this so many times in the last three years, but it seems to me like most of the prophets lately have been trained by the elder brother. I don't know, have you guys read like the prophecies against San Francisco? They come in waves. And now there's another wave of it. You know, and it's, it's so funny because people have this idea like tragedy creates repentance. That's how they get there. They go, listen, God's going to like create an earthquake. It's going to kill you know, a few thousand people and then people will repent. How many people have you met in stores and on planes and every other place and you go, you need God and they go, you know, I had a son who died. God loved me. Tragedy did not lead them to repentance. What I'm getting at is tragedy and repentance aren't directly related. It's like the dog named Lucky. Okay, maybe let me give you a scriptural example. Moses is confronted by Korah and the elders. Remember this? And, and Moses, and they're grumbling and all. And God says, stand back. And Moses is all, what? And God says, stand back. And Moses stands back, and the earth opens up and eats all of Korah's family. Right? Now, that's a... <laughs> First of all, if God creates an earthquake, He isn't going to miss the people He's mad at. <laughs> You'll notice that it didn't open up and swallow Moses. <laughs> That's another thought. Because even Abraham knew that God doesn't, God doesn't cause the righteous and the wicked to be valued the same. They say, well, God loves everyone the same. He does, but He favors people differently. Okay, so let me finish my example, if you don't mind. The earth opens up and swallows all of Korah's family. What happened the next morning? It says that all the people grumbled against Moses because he killed Korah's family. What happened to the deep repentance? Well, they, they thought that Lucky shouldn't have lost a leg. 
Do you see the correlation there? In the book of Revelation, it talks about plagues coming on people. And it says this, And even though the plagues came on the people, it says, But they did not repent. No, follow me just for a second. I, 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 just, I want you to get, if you don't get anything else, get this one point. Tragedy and soft hearts do not necessarily go together. In other words, you can't rationalize that God kills a bunch of people so that He can get people to repent because a soft heart and tragedy don't go directly together. Just because someone has a tragedy doesn't mean they repent. Oftentimes they get hard. It depends, the way they, it depends on the way they view the world. It depends on the way they view God. Are you with me? If they're in God's mad-at-me mode and something terrible goes, happen, they, goes wrong, they go, that's God right there. He's the God who's he's mean. He's just judgmental. And then we go, yeah, that's right. You know, why don't you come to a loving God? He loves you so much. He loves you so much that He destroyed your city and killed all your family just to show you how much He loves you. You should read this, these, these prophecies. The people, they, have to, they need some kind of brain scan. People, seriously, read the one that's going around right now about the Golden Gate. It's just nuts. It's like people... And then there's going to be this great time of blessing. Wow, dude, you know, have you ever been to a tragedy? Even a bad car accident. Can you imagine your, the family next door to you is not saved? So you say, God, I just pray that you would kill their son so the whole family would repent. See, when you know the person, part of the problem is, is that the nameless and faceless thing got carried away. And now we don't have anybody with names or faces, so we can prophesy anything we want against people. But as soon as you put a name and a face on it and repeat the prophecy, it doesn't sound so good. Do you understand that if you prophesy judgment against San Francisco, that there's someone's daughter's going to die there, someone's son, someone's loved one, someone's father, someone's mother, someone's grandmother, someone's grandpa, those people... Those are people that somebody loves. <laughs> this, this is a good word. It's the Pharisees' idea. The Pharisees are the ones that, want, that are mad that Jesus hangs out with people who are screwed up. It's the Pharisees that are mad. The elder brother is the Pharisee in the story. Jesus told the story because the Pharisees are mad that Jesus is kind to people who don't deserve it. There is a Pharisee spirit in the church. The religious spirit is the strongest spirit in all the world besides the Holy Spirit. The religious spirit is stronger than the spirit of immorality is stronger than the this, this spirit of molestation, stronger than the spirit of murder. It wasn't the spirit of murder or molestation or immorality that put Jesus on the cross. It was the religious spirit. And I want to tell you that the church is a breeding ground for the strongest spirit that opposes the Holy Spirit. The church is. 
And we need to, be, we need to guard ourselves against it. How do you know if you've got that religious thing going on? Because you want to still kill and destroy, but God wants abundant life. Very simple. If your prophecies, your, the way you live life, is kill, still destroy, very simple. If you want people killed, steal, stole, stolen... Stole, sorry, dude, I can't talk to If you want people dead, stolen from, or destroyed, it's very simple where that came from. If you figured out a way to justify that kill, steal, or destroy are somehow working for the kingdom, then that's called deception. Like your perception is deception. And you are selling a God that only has one attitude when things go wrong. Kill everybody. I've said this lots of times, but I think it's a great example. There's people that say, well, there's been, you know, there's 1.5 million babies aborted every year, and God's so mad about that that He's going to kill a bunch of people to make His point that He hates that people are killing people. <laughs> oh, that makes really good sense. See, all you have to do is talk to yourself, and you'll figure this stuff out. Some of you go talk to your friends that have the same attitude. You come, that's why I talk to me, because I get the right answers for me. <laughs> I just try it on myself. Like, if you have a prophecy, try it on yourself first. You know, when we used to, uh, when, actually my wife, when she used to feed the babies, she would take the milk, you know, and warm it up. Do they do that anymore? I know the diapers are plastic now, man. We used to use the real thing. And, um, and we didn't use no duct tape on them either. The pens. You try the, you try the milk on your, on your hand first to make sure it didn't burn you. Because if it burns you, it's going to burn the baby. You know, one of the ways to know if what's coming out of your face should actually be heard by anyone else or written down is like, you try it on you. And think about it. Like, if you're going to prophesy something, think about if it was the people you love the most that you were prophesying to. I noticed that nobody in San Francisco is prophesying against San Francisco. It's all the people who live somewhere else. <laughs> Which shouldn't surprise us. I want to write him a little thank you letter. Thank you for all your help. Do me a favor. Please, shut up. Please stop doing for the devil, in parentheses, the accuser of their brethren, what he cannot do for himself. Signed, God's friend. Chris. Friend of the people you're prophesying against. These people you're prophesying against are my friends. Please stop talking bad about them. By the way, I have a prophecy for you. What's your mother and brother's names? I'd like to get this really accurate. <laughs> Try this on yourself 
first. Some of you aren't smiling. I had a neighbor whose dog was named Satan. <laughs> and when he, the dog would run down the street, he would call him. Which was relieving for our house. Because <laughs> at least he kept him busy. <laughs> you didn't get that. <laughs> I went to pick Larry and Bob Jones up. This is about... Four years ago, and they were, uh, oh, it must have been longer than that. Not a long time ago, probably 10 years ago. I went to pick Bob Jones and Larry up, and they were at the hotel at, uh, at uh, wherever we put them up. And so I get there, and, and Bob Jones is standing out there. He's, yep, you ready? I said, I'm 10 minutes early. I said, where's Larry? He said, I don't know. So Larry comes out of his <laughs> hotel room, and he looks like he just got ran over by a truck. He's about 10 minutes late. And he goes, and Bob, Bob looks up and he goes, yeah, you had a hard night last night, didn't you? And there he goes, I sure did. He goes, yeah, he says, the devil came to my room last night. And I said, I said to him, you got the wrong room, Larry's next door. <laughs> True story. <laughs> he said, thanks a lot, I slept like a baby. Yep, I slept like a baby. <laughs> Can you imagine the devil coming to your room and be like, You got the wrong room. There's room next door. <laughs> Whatever, you know. Hmm. I'm just seeing if I have anything else to say. I'll stun you with my revelation tonight, I'm sure. I just have a real sense that the Lord is... He's changing the church's culture. You know the word culture comes from the word cult? When people say, you're a cult, you say, you're right. Don't say that. <laughs> Take that off the podcast. I have a sense that the Lord is restoring a culture that's driven by fatherhood. And that's why Malachi says, in the last days I'll send Elijah my prophet. And he will restore the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers. Listen to this last part. Least I smite the nation with a curse. In the last days, what is the primary mark of the prophetic movement in the last days? Is it judgment? No, it's the restoration of families. Why don't we stand? I want us to pray... I want us to pray 
for every place that doesn't know how to celebrate and have fun. Now, I know there are responsibilities. But one of our responsibilities is to have fun. Do you know that there were seven feasts and one fast in the Old Testament? I've never heard anybody preach on feasting. I've heard lots of people preach on fasting. And you can tell which one I have adored. I want us to just pray right now that the Lord would begin to restore joy. Real joy. Real joy to the church. And I'm not, you know, I'm including laughing and falling down, but I'm talking about real joy because, you know, there was an old song in the 60s that said, smiling faces don't always tell the truth. I'm, I'm sick of plastic Christianity that when you walk in the hallway, people are, how you doing? I'm fine, brother. How you doing? You know, I'm not talking about that garbage. I'm sick of that phony plastic thing. You know, if you're having a bad day, you're having a bad day. I'm not talking about pretend Christianity. But I'm just talking about the constant joy that you have when you receive Jesus that isn't always pleasure. How many know joy and pleasure aren't the same thing? When God says, consider all joy when you counter various trials, He's not saying that you always have fun in a trial. But there's a joy that that we have access to that supersedes and transcends any trial. Now, I'm going to tell you, just be totally honest with you, I've had a trial where I didn't find that joy in the midst of it. And that was my struggle every day, because I know the kingdom of God is, is not eat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. But how many of you know that if I pray for somebody, they don't get healed, it doesn't mean there's not that they lay hands on the sick and they shall recover isn't true. It means that there are mysteries that I need to find out. If you're in a place where you have it, where, where you know you're like I'm doing everything I know to do and I I'm not feeling any joy, it's like okay well press in because the Bible says it's available, and so press past whatever it is that that you need, you know whatever it is keeping you from that. You, are you understand? I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning myself. I'm like okay I'm not. Uh, it says that there's joy in the kingdom. It says there's peace in the kingdom, and I am not experiencing that. So, so there's a piece of the kingdom. I'm not, I, have, I have an access for some reason, whatever that is. And Lord, whatever that is, please change, change me. I know the problem's not on your side. The problem's somewhere on earth. And I pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And it says that you're always rejoicing. Think about it. If thousands of people are coming to Christ every day, it must be a constant party in heaven. Because he says that they rejoice over one sinner being saved it stands to reason that there's probably been an ongoing 2,000-year party because I can't imagine a day in the whole world where one person wasn't saved, even in the dark ages. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure the Lord's like, somebody get down there and save somebody because we are about to close the doors on the party. So I just want to pray that we would learn how to receive joy in every situation. And that we would learn how to have the attitude of the father and not the elder brother. That we wouldn't be condemning over the elder brother. We would be like the father going, hey, what are you doing? You know, you own the whole farm here, buddy. You know, it's like, come to the party. Your brother, your brother. By the way, he's your brother. By the way, these people you're prophesying to, those are your people. 
I've given you those people. I didn't tell you to kill them. I said take care of them. I said disciple them. I didn't say destroy them. I know it starts with a D, but it is different words. Oh, Lord, we couldn't disciple the nations, so we just called down judgment. Dude, you don't know what spirit you're in. So, Father, we just pray right now. I want us to pray, first of all, I want us to pray for this prophetic movement. Father, I pray for this prophetic movement. In fact, we need to just do it a little bit more. Can you grab a hand? Let's just, just, it seems like when we grab a hand, we get more serious. I know, that's probably our religious tradition that we need to scrap someday, but right now we're just going to go with it. I know, you know that grabbing a hand isn't in the Bible? Shocking, isn't it? Shocking, it ought to be. Or close your eyes and bow your head. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But watch and pray is. So we're getting a lot of these in heaven. That's why I have a collection. Jesus, we just pray right now that you would just release your wisdom and a fathering and mothering spirit over this prophetic movement. That all over the world the prophets would get happy. No, I really am serious now. That the prophets would get happy. That they could see beyond what the, what the younger brother is doing. They can, they can see the, into the eyes of the Rahabs of the world, the eyes of the Mary Magdalene's of the world, and they can find a treasure in the midst of the dirt of people's lives, and they can prophesy to the treasure and not give words of knowledge about the dirt in the name of a prophetic declaration. Lord, we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for our sin-filled cities to be full of miracles, signs, and wonders so that there's a dramatic contrast between darkness and light. Now while you're holding hands, I want to just stay, just stay in the prayerful mode. I had a dream about, a, I think it was about eight, seven or eight days ago. And in the dream, in, um, let me just, let me just uh, remember the, the dream. In the dream, um, um, people were prophesying against cities and the Lord stopped them. He put their, his hand over their mouth and he said, what are you doing? And they said, you prophesied against cities and he said, I showed them miracles, signs, and wonders so that they would see contrast. You have showed them nothing and expect them to turn. Okay, now I'm going to finish the prayer, all right, so you know what I'm talking about. Lord, I pray for San Francisco. I pray for Hollywood. I pray for New York. I pray for L.A. Lord, that there would be miracles, signs, wonders. Your love would be poured out. That people would see a divine contrast between the powers of God and the powers of the devil. That they wouldn't be able to make a decision just based on the powers of darkness. That, that you would be a light set on a hill that could not be hidden. That there would be no person, there would be no person in San Francisco or any of these cities that goes to hell without making a conscious choice to not receive the light. Not understand the power of God. Lord, I pray that every single person that chooses darkness would actually make a choice because they've seen light and power and love. Father, I pray that there would be demonstrations of power, demonstrations of compassion, demonstrations of love, so that they can see the contrast between light and darkness. Lord, I pray for that. I pray that powerful move of God in San Francisco. Lord, I pray that you would unearth the wells of St. Francis of Assisi. 
that you would un uncap the wells of St. Francis of Assisi. You probably know this, but El Camino Highway runs from San Francisco to L.A. And L.A. was called the Los Angeles, the City of Angels. And El Camino is the King's Highway. It followed mission districts. And Lord, we just released the King's Highway. The King's Highway between San Francisco and L.A. would be opened up again. And the angels and St. Francis of Assisi would begin to team up. Lord, we just release an apostolic call over San Francisco, over Los Angeles, over New York, over Hollywood. Let there be a, an apostolic call. Let apostolic people begin to move there, not move away. Move there, move there, move there, move there. Lord, I pray that you would, we just begin to call back people who were supposed to be in Frisco. Lord, that they would come back, that righteous people would begin to reign again, that the righteous would rule. Lord, I pray that homosexuals would have a love encounter with God. A love encounter with God. Lord, that they begin to see dreams and visions about the love of God. I pray, Lord, that there would be a revelation. I pray this this morning. It's something that God put my spirit. That there would be a revelation. It says that, uh, let me say this. It says that Jonathan, that David loved Jonathan more than he loved women. A woman. It's not talking about lust. It's talking about a brotherly covenant connection that transcends sexual relationships. Lord, I pray for the Jonathan and David um, revelation to be released over the homosexual community and over the church Lord that people can begin to have um, a positive oh, man I don't even know what I'm saying Lord just release that over them in the name of Jesus that there would be there would be brotherly and and sisterly relationships that are holy and healthy and yet deeply connected come on let's get back to holy affection Lord I pray we get back to holy affection in the name of Jesus that you could have a covenant relationship with the same sex without there being some weird thing to it. Lord, we release that. The love of the brethren. The holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let holy affection return to the church. Come on. Lord, I pray that people don't have to go into the world to get affection anymore. They don't have to find some prostitute to find affection, to be touched, to be hugged, to be kissed. Lord, we just release that over the church. The church would be the most loving place in the world. It would be a manger, a mess with a child in it. Lord, we release that right now. A feeding trough with a child in it. Lord, we just release that. Father, I pray that we would get out that spirit of perfectionism it has to make everything perfect Ugh. Lord if you wanted things in the church to be perfect you would have had your son born in a hotel not in the manger I don't know if you're getting all this this is good stuff right here there was no room in the end on purpose Lord that was your plan that's a prophetic sign that you always Lord, that birth, the things that you birth are not always clean and neat and nice and they don't always go perfectly. How many of you know that God's doing things in so many of your lives? It's a prophetic declaration. It's messy and you're like, if this was God, it'd be perfect. No, God doesn't work like that. 
Oftentimes God works in our lives and He's new things are being birthed and you're like, you know, this can't be God. At least there'd be room in a hotel. And God's like, I like mangers. <laughs> Whew, come on. Some of you right now are just being released from some guilty stuff because your life isn't perfect. Like Bill's and mine. <laughs> Lord, I just release us from perfectionism. That whole spirit of plastic. The plastic trees, the plastic flowers. It's just a bunch of lies. Lord, I just release people from that stuff. Lord, I just pray that pretend would be gone and that there would be a realness about our joy. That we would be sincerely happy. Lord, just release joy, the real joy on people. So that they don't have to go find some kind of false stuff out in the world. Let us be the happiest people in the world. Lord, let us be on something. <laughs> oh, man. I got on a website the other day and the guy has this saying, I, I, it is offensive, I never did drugs, and he says, token the ghost. And then under that, he says, it says, get high for God. I'm like, the whole metaphor doesn't work for me, but it might work for some of you who have a past life that I don't have. Whatever, Lord, I just pray that you would get us drunk in God. Don't be drunk with wine but be intoxicated by God. Lord, we just pray for that in the name of Jesus. Whew. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray that we'd be so intoxicated that we'd be out of our minds and into yours. Drunk people don't act like themselves. Lord, we just pray the new wine. Let the new wine just begin to flow over people. You can drop hands right now. Just Thank you, Lord. Father, we just pray. We just pray for new wine. Now, if you want new wine, you have to go like this. This is the new wine look. You guys look so funny. You'll just do anything I ask you to do, don't you? Lord, I just pray for the new wine, that you just pour out the new wine on people. <laughs> yeah, banning's all. You would have went to the party, wouldn't you? No chance you're the elder brother. Lord, we just release it. Come on, just receive it right now. You're like, what is he going to be done? Man, it's all smoky out there anyway. If God really loved us, it wouldn't be smoky. <laughs> Wrong dog. Okay, Lord, we just... I'm <laughs> just joking. Lord, just release. Just release joy over people. Lord, I pray that people would go home to the fun house. And not the haunted house. Lord, I pray that you would drive demons out of people's houses that are present in this room. No, I'm really serious. Some people are going home to haunted houses. Lord, I just release the glory of the Lord. Literally, would just manifest in houses. That there would be angelic visitations. There's some, 
There's people here, you just, you know, you have room.